0: Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the A.V. Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick. Oh, you already started. Okay. Yeah. This is Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. I gave you the cue. My the- coffee is not yet kicked in, nor have my eyeballs focused in the right direction, because it's early. Well, everybody got to enjoy a little
1: bit more of the intro music then. So
0: <laughs> That nice retro 70s funkaliciousness.
1: I'm Dave Brooks. You knew what you were looking for when you pulled that out, right? And you found that audio. I'm Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. You, you
1: knew exactly what you were
0: looking for. I wanted something to go with that cheesy leather jacket that you and I both have let's correct that to what you have i'm joel (laughs) hoover it's awesomeness i'm joel hoover
1: welcome to rick and nick talk flicks sponsored by the bemidji theater which is on highway two just outside of bemidji just down from the airport great place to go catch a movie here in the bemidji area and for the greater bemidji area as well they've got five dollar movie nights on tuesdays concession stand is open if you are still kind of wary about going to the movies you can go to the concession stand and that'll be a big way to support the Bemidji theater um, with the income that they make from concessions the the sales that they make from concessions so that's it's, really
0: how you support the local theater
1: yeah in general that that goes for for any theater so Bemidji theater Proud to be a sponsor of our podcast. We are proud to have them on board as a sponsor of this podcast. This is so, day one. Yeah, from from day one.
0: Yeah. Shout out to Missy and the crew.
1: That's right. So we, we appreciate them uh quite a lot. Today we are going uh from from the the pages to the screen itself with this episode today and a topic that Dave and I have one way or another unintentionally danced around ...with what we are talking about today with screenwriting, so we're going to get into that in just a little bit here. But first, um, a major current events item that Dave just made me aware of a few minutes ago, and it's, it's a pretty significant one in the world of movies and in the world of streaming, which we have talked about quite a bit on this podcast over the last few years, and
0: it's in relation to Netflix. Dave... Well, Netflix just reported their first quarterly earnings for 2022, and they lost approximately 120,000 subscribers. That with dollar figure comes out to somewhere estimated around $55 billion that Netflix lost in the first quarter of 2022. Well, streaming is the future of broadcasting and movies and all sorts of things. I mean, whether it's a show or a movie or a miniseries or whatever, this is the future. But Netflix just dropped $55 billion worth of subscribers. And recently, just in the last couple of months, they announced that they were going to spend just this year alone about $60 billion on content. That's all streamers together, not just Netflix. So brand new content uh, for 2022, they were going to go forth with about $60 billion. And something about that is what Netflix just lost. So, But Netflix, as of right now, at the time of recording this, is the only streamer to have numbers dropping like that. Just this morning, I read HBO Max, went up well you've got you've got uh, you've got problems going on economically right now you've got arguing that maybe a recession is coming you've got a lot of inflation you've got a lot of people having to make some decisions well if we're going to have this then we need to drop that and you figure well that might be part of it Netflix also has been talking about and threatening that they're going to start cracking down on password sharing. Um, the yep. majority of people, and here's a funny thing. There was a show on Netflix a, a while back called Love, when, like the late 2010s, and they actually put out a tweet, love is sharing your password. Well, now they're cracking down on password sharing, so they're not showing the love, I guess. And I, I get that. That's If you were, you're sharing your password with somebody else, that's another household that's not, subscribing to netflix they want a piece of that lost pie and now they've got a huge piece of pie missing so if this is the future of streaming and netflix as of right now is the only streamer that has dropped to that level and other streamers like hbo max are going up so what's the deal here is this a troubling sign for the future is this just something tied to uh an incoming recession possibly could this be a growing pain could this be maybe not all things are perfect this is something this is not a little thing this is 55 billion dollars that's yeah. more than some countries put out in their gdp
1: yeah it is significant now there there are a few factors to to take a look at here netflix has come out and they have said that their decision to pull out of russia was yep. significant that cost the company seven hundred thousand subscribers when they decided we're going to pull out of russia because of, of what's going on with the war in ukraine however that that's not all that it Th- that is playing a factor, though. Inflation is is a big deal right now. It is a very big deal. And so a lot of people are trying to determine, hey, what, what are we going to do? What, what do maybe we need to let go of? And that's playing a role, too. Here's a report according to CNN. People in Great Britain – actually, it's also from a, a media consultancy called Kantar – People in Great Britain canceled about 1.5 million streaming subscriptions and I think that's just general streaming subscriptions in the first 3 months of 2022 and according to that report from Kantar more than a third did so to save money. So they're they're looking at it and going because of inflation right now we are having to make consumer choices. We are having to make decisions especially in relation to things that we subscribe to and we're having to let something go, and that something is is streaming. So that's you can look at it from those standpoints, and yet you have a good example to the contrary of a streaming service that is on the rise right now.
0: Well, and beyond even that, we are not depending on your definition. We're in the pandemic slash endemic. It's not over yet, but it's receding where a lot of people have found solace in the last couple of years with their entertainment dollar, with their streaming. And you're not going to the movie theaters as much, so we'll stream whatever. And a lot of these streamers have based themselves on new releases. HBO Max just put The Batman, which we just did a big long thing on, that just went up on HBO Max. That has barely been in the theaters a couple of months, so now they're really kind of shortening it down to like a 45-day window, I think, from theatrical release to when it comes out on streaming. And others have been doing, with some lawsuits associated with it, day-and-date release on streaming and big screen simultaneously. Long story short, a lot of these streamers have been making their bread and butter off of this, and a lot of Americans especially. We'll just talk about the U.S. Forget about the world, just the U.S. People have been really you know, finding their comfort Object with their remote control and watching streaming or cable or whether it's sports or movies or whatever. And so now that we're taking this turn, the recession seems to be a likely thing in the future here. But the first thing to go is uh, streaming. Interesting for some people, some people. But HBO Max is on the up. They're like, on the up. You've, you've talked about that, that. I just read that this morning, yeah. so I don't, I don't have the guts of it. But it'll be interesting as we get a little further and more Q1 reports start coming out. How did Peacock do? How about Paramount Plus? They're fairly new. Um, I've got my favorite. I'm not, I'll tell you what, of all the streaming services, and I've seen and used and have had a couple, uh, I think Disney Plus and Netflix are the two best that I use. Peacock real glitchy. Paramount Plus is almost broken as an app goes. Half the things you want to watch, you can get the ad to play, but it won't play the show. In in many cases, uh, I've actually been within a week of being with Paramount Plus because I'm a Star Trek fan and I haven't been catching up on the local stuff. I uh, had to get a hold of their customer service and say, "Hey, if you can't get this thing to even work, I want a refund. I want to cancel." And they are scrambling to try to make things work, and that's nice. But I mean, there's. I got to think there's a bunch of those where we're just going to put this out. We just need people to subscribe to it, and we'll worry about making the wheels turn on this car once people buy the car. No, no, no. You get to deliver something that works. Look at Disney+, Plus. look at Netflix. They have an interface that is easy and it works, and when you select a show, it plays. And They're not the only ones. In light of this news, I, I'm curious what, if any, kind of trend
1: this may set moving forward for streaming, because... It has become very splintered. I mean, everybody has been launched, everybody it seems, every media entity has been launching their own streaming platform and streaming service, and it has become very splintered. Now that we are in a time of inflation, now that we are getting into a time of consumer choices that they are having to make, will this splintered nature of streaming be able to sustain itself through it, be able to quote unquote survive. That that's a little bit much, but survive through it I, I think is going to be a big question to to need to be
0: answered here during the course of the next few months, maybe even beyond. Well what do we what are, I mean, I'm not leaving out sports and all of that special interest, you know, platforms. We have what, eight, ten general, large scale streaming platforms, you know, leaving out MLB and so on and so forth. Um, this isn't going to last like this. You're going to see, you're going to see them rise, and you're going to see them fall. But you're also going to see them merge. And it started out like that. Hulu originally was co-owned to a degree with shares by a lot of different distributors and studios. As of now, most of them have pulled out because they've got their own thing going. Disney is the largest version of this, and they're basically going to transform a, a Hulu into the Disney version of adult programming because they own 20th Century Fox. But you can't have the kids finish watching Lilo and Stitch. Here's another movie about aliens you might enjoy, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger versus The Predator. You can't have that on Disney Plus. (laughs) So when I say adult content, that's the kind of thing I mean. But they're turning outside of the states. Disney Star is what they call it. Is a sub program inside of the Disney Plus app where the adult program is. In the U.S., Disney being the major showholder shareholder of Hulu, they're basically going to turn that into adult Disney, so to speak. Okay. So that's where you'll see the adult content and the alien movies and so forth. But they are going to come together at some point. You're not going to have ten streamers like this because you can't. It's not a sustainable model. There'll be mergers. There'll be collapses. Um, if twenty, if uh, let's say Paramount, for example, they can't sustain it. Just as an argument, they're going to have to provide what they're doing for a co- for a fee on other. Content, So maybe Hulu will pick up Paramount things and maybe uh, other streamers, HBO Max might do a deal with Paramount and they start getting deals like that. So these 8 to 10 streaming services for movies and shows eventually will probably shrink down to 4, something like that. But it is going to be
1: hard to pull that off when you have one studio-owned streaming service maybe suddenly trying to go to another studio-owned streaming service and saying, hey – Let's come together on this, who runs it? Who's in charge of running that library if it's if it's something like let's say let's say Paramount Plus and Peacock would come together. Those are two completely company-owned entities who would be combining together then and saying let's do a streaming service together. That's an awkward proposition. Yeah. It, it it makes it would make the consumer much more happy because then you have a larger a larger streaming platform where all of this is getting put together and hopefully a better run one if they are combining forces there. But who is in charge of it?
0: Who ends up directing how that's going to look? That becomes a challenge. But it's been done. It's not like it's uncharted territory. Look at what Hulu was. I mean, it was in the infancy of streaming, so it's kind of hard to really look at it because, I mean, streaming as an entity – you can't really make a comparison from like two years ago versus today streaming is way different and the pandemic had a lot to do with that yeah but it's not like it's never been done before you get you know the this the head ceo of this streamer and this streamer and this streamer and they get together we're going to form our own company they'll figure out the dollars and of course everybody's trying to get the most that they possibly can and well if you're only subscribing and you're only looking at the paramount movies how come i at warner brothers have to pay such and such a fee to get our things on and all the paramount sh- that make better shows apparently i guess guess but is is there a way to do it yes and we're going to find out because i'm sure that the people at peacock which is nbc universal in comcast they want to be number one overall like everybody else does but it's not going to work out like that at some point some of those that are starting are going to have problems are going to have issues they're just not going to be competitive compared to the likes of say what netflix has been and disney plus which you know as of till like three days ago were the top two um, so who's going to be ultimately left at the end? How are they going to merge together? It's not like if Peacock falls apart as a streaming app, you just won't be able to find NBC or Universal movies. It, of course not. They'll be out there. They're already on other streamers, but Universal owning their own streaming platform, they don't have to pay for those. It's their movies. It's their shows. Yeah. That's the point of it. But you know, if we wanted to have a Warner Brothers show on on a Peacock, of course we can. But you probably got to pay Warner Brothers for that. We're going to do all the Batman movies. Okay, we'll have Warner Brothers put together a package and we'll have them uh, distribution rights for our streaming for the next six months or year or whatever it is, but you have to pay for that that 's where everybody 's going to that 's why a lot of these studios pulled out of hulu because well, we 're going to do our own app and we 're going to get our own money and we well that 's only going to work so long as the the people subscribing will allow it to work and when it finally gets to that point and it will get to that point um, then they 're going to have to figure it out on their own and they 're going to be on their own or they 're going to be you know homogenized and coming together. Could this be the start of it? Could this uh, Could this inflation have a lot to do with it? These that are really kind of I mean, I I think nobody likes to drop fifty five billion dollars, but Netflix seems to be. If there is a streamer that can absorb that, it's probably them because they're arguably the biggest or were up till a couple days ago. Um, But if Peacock dropped, you know, fifty five billion dollars, that would probably be the end of Peacock. Yeah. So let's see what happens. Let's see where things are going to go. If there's a ripple effect, yeah. There will be to some degree. But, I mean, that's such a huge drop. And just for Netflix, now maybe it's pushed back, well, I don't want to share my password. You know, Fine, then then take your ball and go home. But And they've got a point. I'm not saying that I've never shared my password with anybody over the years. Most Americans have at some point to some degree. Or borrowed somebody's password, whatever. Um, But this will happen. Will this be accelerated because of inflation and maybe a recession coming? Distinct possibility. This is going to be an interesting one to see where it goes. But this could be the first shot over the bow. It's one to monitor. A big one to monitor. So we'll
1: we'll keep an eye out on that. Shall we take the uh, turn into where we're going today? Yes. Script to screen. That's what we are discussing today, going from the script writing to the screen itself. We've talked about a lot of different elements related to the crafting of a movie. We've discussed directors in the past. We've talked about cinematography as well. We've talked about mood and setting. Movie theory in, in a lot of ways. Script writing is, is a huge, huge part of, of how this all comes together. Because Arguably the biggest. It, it is arguably the biggest because this, this is not just... This is not just words on a page of these are your lines. There's way more to that with script writing. And I'll, I'll give a, a great example of, of how this looks that I can recall from my time from my growing up years in middle school because I went on a field trip one time and got to go to this this cool, I think it was a script writing seminar that I got to go to um, as part of a program that I was in in school. And I remember we, we were reading lines from a movie. And it was from this opening scene where you don't know who the characters are um, in this particular scene. But you get all these extra details that are in there. And one guy was described as being this mustached man who you don't know who he is yet. And I think there was something about it being in se- sepia tone or something else like that. Then you get to this certain point in writing the script and all of a sudden, the mustached man, as he's listed there in the script, has his name changed to Sundance. We were reading the opening sequence to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid okay. and reading through the script that was there. But not just the script. It was the screenplay. The screenplay. Because that's what a, a movie script really is, Dave. It is truly a screenplay. You are writing out the visual idea of what you want the movie to look like in addition to the verbal idea of what you want the movie to look like
0: let's take a quick step back and let's kind of come up with a bit of a foundation here and some little definition here for those that are following along you know we're not experts but we are kind of experts because we watch a lot of shows and we know things there's a difference between you know story by and screenplay by Story is like writing out the outline. It's the beats. It's the broad strokes of the story. It might be over like maybe eight pages. You know, that's it. That's the story. You write out the general beats of what's going to happen, but there's no dialogue there. Superman walks to his left and examines that. No, that's the screenplay. The screenplay is what this is based on the story that is written by the first writer. And yes, somebody can write the story and then the same person writes the screenplay. Oftentimes, the story or the script gets passed down to to another screenwriter, and they'll flesh it out and maybe change it. And famously, they can go through some major, major changes. Oh, man. So story by, screenplay by, they're similar, but they're different things, and the screenplay is much more fleshed out, and that's ultimately what you see the actors on the set with looking at their dialogue. But then there's also the difference between, the you know, when you come to Oscar time and awards time, what's an original screenplay? What's an adapted screenplay? If it's like Apollo 13, for example, that was a real event. You know, that really happened in 1970 and they were going to the moon and things went wrong on the ship and they had to make an adjustment. That's an adapted screenplay. It's not 100% accurate because 29 different people did these 29 different things. That's harder to follow. On A movie, so maybe you boil them down into one character who does these 29 things. It's not completely accurate, but the story and the spirit of is very accurate. Original screenplay that is something where somebody hmm, I think I'm going to come up with a, and that's where Star Wars comes from. It was, you know, he might have gotten inspiration from things, but it was no adaption, it was absolutely original and original creation. Yeah, yeah, that's where definitions are going to come into play. You're going to hear Hoove and I kind of bouncing around. Well, the screenplay and the script. That's what the definitions are, so that you can a little more easily follow along what we're talking about and what it all means. So now that we've got that out of the
1: way, yeah, when I was thinking about it in in the build up to this this podcast, it's no wonder that so many directors will write their own screenplays or will write their own idea of what they have in mind, or that they have a trusted confidant who will do that writing for them, Dave, because this really is the the idea being fleshed out on paper. You are you are putting together a pretty a, a pretty closely knit idea of what is actually going to play out on the screen itself to page when you are writing it out. And there's some there's some rules of how that typically looks that that we'll probably get into here in just a moment especially with like what one page equals in terms of time in the movie itself. But but this is where the the idea of the movie is is truly being created. Like you can you can have an idea in your mind. And and many I mean that that's what directors have. I'm sure directors people who who have the idea for films, they've got tons of them running around in their mind. Putting it to paper though, that's where the challenge rests. And that's what separates the great ones from the mediocre ones because you have to do a good job of being able to put it all on paper of what you want your vision to look like. And it has to come with Not just the setting, and that's where the screenplay part comes in in particular, but you've got to have a really compelling story that has a really compelling dialogue that is attached to it.
0: You know, no two movies are made the same, and there's also another good question, well who really makes the movie? Well, it's the director, right? Well, in some cases, yeah, but they're, they're not all the same i give you a couple of different examples of how a movie goes from its original genesis to the way it makes it to the screen. Look at, say, something like uh, the Indiana Jones movies. You had George Lucas and you had Spielberg. And eventually Harrison Ford really got worked into behind the scenes, too. All three of them had to sign off on the idea, and generally the original idea would come from George Lucas. You'll see him on the story by. Spielberg would throw things into, but he was generally the director, but a lot of times you'd see story by George Lucas screenplay by, and a lot of times there'd be a screenwriter they'd work with a lot named Lawrence Kasdan who's been involved in Star Wars and yes. Indiana Jones. So George Lucas would come up with a general idea. You know, In fact, it comes down to this, a real quick sidebar, but it's interesting. Spielberg, after he'd finished making whatever movie in the late 70s, early 80s, maybe he was just done with uh, uh, Close Encounters, I think, he and George Lucas are like best friends. They go on vacations together and they're sitting on the beach one day in Hawaii. And Spielberg is saying, I, th- I think I want to do a-, a James Bond movie. And, and George Lucas famously said, Don't. I got something better. Indiana Smith. Which later got changed to Indiana Jones. Right. And that's how it started. George Lucas came up with an idea, bounced it with Spielberg. And they're like, yeah, George Lucas got the story idea. I like that general idea. Let's run with it. They hire a screenwriter and then they really flesh it out. And that's how it starts. And you get the director very involved. And then there are other times where the story comes together completely independent of the director. Um, and sometimes it's to a credit, sometimes it's to a detriment. Yes. Um, I'm a Star Trek fan. One of the Star Trek movies, Nemesis, was directed by a guy uh, who's best known as an editor, actually, in, uh, in, in movies. And he got involved in doing Star Trek, and he'd never seen a Star Trek anything, didn't care, didn't know anything about anything. And the movie kind of, in some ways, veers away from what Star Trek had been because the director... Um, and I'm trying. I'm struggling to remember what his name was uh, right now. I hate to say it because uh, I- he's a very well-known – Stuart Baird, there you go. Uh, very well done editor, and he's done a couple of directing efforts, but he didn't really know anything. He was just a director for hire. He's got great skills. He can see the movie, but it needs to go a little further than that. So that's all he is as a shepherd to a point. You know, he directed the movie, had nothing to do with its creation prior to when they showed up on screen And the set that day, and then he starts directing things. Well, wait a minute. My character would never say that because in 15 movies, I've never said that. Yeah, 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 but that's the way we're going to go. So there's a lot of different ways that these movies can find their way through. And sometimes a director is far from the most influential person, except maybe on the last few you know, steps of the thing that really form how it finally comes together. And maybe that doesn't hold true to where things have come before. You need somebody maybe more involved in the writing process. So there's a long, in multiple different ways that this comes. But the writing, I'm going to say, is the more involved of the two. When you get a guy like Quentin Tarantino, he's involved All the way through. He it is his movie. He shepherds it, he writes it, produces it, directs it. It is all Tarantino and much less by committee. That's right. The the committee approach to it or the
1: collaborative approach to it, I think, especially seems to come up in in two areas. One is television. Television requires a collaborative effort in, in a major way because you have multiple episodes that are being put together within a show. And so it helps sometimes to have fresh perspectives in the writing room. You have the producers. You have the executive producers who who oversee the entire thing. Let kind me shepherd it through. Yeah. Let me give a prime example with my favorite show on TV, which is, is back for its final season right now. Better, I know where you're going. Better Call Saul they uh, they have two executive producers Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould they they are the ones who oversee from the top how how the show plays out but then they have they have a host of writers and and other producers who who play a lot of different roles who who may write a given episode who may direct a given episode but it is a collaborative effort with those two helming it from the top and yet with a trusted group of people who help put together the show and you can sometimes see each individual person's individual touch on an episode if if they're writing it if they're directing it which is i mean they're they're giving the cues when it's being acted out when it's being performed but you see some of those those touches on an individual episode the same goes for i believe for some of the the larger movie franchises that are out there. Now, sometimes those are director driven or, or driven by an individual. But in many cases these days, and Marvel is, is one of the biggest examples of this, you have a studio that has a an idea that is permeating through a lot of their different movies. They may have a different director for it, they may have many different screenplay. Writers who are crafting these stories, but they also have producers who are in the room and who have a large influential say on the way that this is going to the screen as well. So the collaborative piece has, I think, in those two areas become very, very common. I mean, you see that with TV all the time. Like, you, it is, I I think, exceptionally rare that you would have one or two people who are the driving forces behind how that gets written because. You'll burn out fast, especially if you're writing one-hour episodes. I mean, that, that's a lot of work, having to put that much to, to page. You need to have multiple people who are going to be able to do that for you. But then when you have a singular movie, like a Quentin Tarantino movie, for example, he can helm a great majority of what goes on there, especially an auteur like him who is who wants to have his hands in the creative process as much as possible. Christopher Nolan, same way. Although Nolan has has put together a very trusted inner circle of people who he can trust with his cinematography or who he can trust with his producing. Um, his own wife, Emma Thomas, has has been part of that, or who he can trust with the writing process, although he himself has been part of that
0: himself too. There's you know from any project, movie, show, whatever They're very similar, but they're also very, very different. Sometimes if you have a long-running show, it used to be a lot of shows were, were called bottle shows. Uh, Every episode was different. It didn't matter if you saw the last 12 episodes. This isn't an overall arc. Every episode kind of exists in its own bottle, and at the end, nothing really changes, but it's a cool show over time. And other shows are much more episodic, and it's the whole season will take place over some big, long story arc, and some of that might be one piece of the vertebrae that makes up the spine that is the run of the entire show, and they're going to get from point A to point Z, and all of this just kind of builds to that so, the way that a lot of those writing rooms are structured when it's more than one is you might have things section off. You might have this writer and this writer write for this certain group. This section of the storyline. Okay, we're going to do a, a crime drama. Okay, we're going to write all the mafia parts. This this part here, and they'll we'll, we'll all work together. But you're going to focus on the mafia parts or characters. Okay, you're going to write for this character and this character and fight and figure out how to make them work into the storyline. We've got the overall general arc. This is what the story is going to be for this season. Let's break it down. And so you might have, quote unquote, experts within the writing room for certain aspects of the cogs that make up the machine that is the story. And that's not uncommon to have something like that be the case. Um, I'm going to write for this guy character. You're going to write for this woman character. We're going to have a romance, but it's got to take place over the course of this season. So let's, you and I go off and we're going to figure this out and will they, won't they. And and that's just one thread woven through this whole story. So you get those writers to do those parts. What you get then from that
1: though is the possibility of a phrase that has become one that scares a lot of fans in in movies and when they especially when a movie is is coming soon and that is script rewrites script yeah. rewriting when when that phrase comes out in the media of there's been a rewrite to the script of so-and-so movie it's funny how the fan uh, sometimes funny how the fan vitriol or the fan shock is is so pronounced especially if it's related to a franchise it's like oh my gosh they're rewriting this this is going to be a disaster this is going to be so bad and script rewrites it's happened for decades that this has gone on it's just become way more public there's been a script rewrite. There's been a setback. There's been a delay in in the process of making this movie. There have been delays in making some of the greatest movies of all time because they went through huge script rewrites for for some of these movies. It's not just limited to the present day. It's just become a lot more public.
0: True. Well, the internet helps with that too and I mean but it, then it, it also comes down to the what are we rewriting and why? Right. Are you a fan of Kevin Smith?
1: Kevin Smith, you've talked about Kevin Clerk, Smith before. Small Rats, yeah,
0: Silent Bob. Uh,
1: Not, I, I haven't really, I haven't watched any of those. Okay, so.
0: um, if you want to get onto YouTube and you don't mind swear words, because he's very well known and very colorful in his language, but he tells a very good story. He's a very good writer. Um, amongst his many stories, he was at one point hired to write. One of the new Superman movies. Now, this would have taken place back in the '90s. Ultimately, the movie that he was hired to write didn't get made. Uh, like went the through a, fifth or sixth. Sequel oh yeah, the Superman. Yeah. After Superman four, Superman as a franchise just kind of um, that kind of wrecked the franchise. Well, how are we going to get this going? He tells a story about he's a big comic book guy and he likes Superman like anybody else. Well, he got hired to write the new Superman movie, and one of the main producers is a guy named John Peters. And he tells this story, and you can find him telling the story on YouTube. It's a great listen to, but there's going to be a lot of Effenheimers and so forth, so prepare yourself. And he is given all these directives by the writer. Okay, I don't want to see him in the suit. Uh, okay, I don't want him to fly. Uh, okay, these are two large things that make up what Superman is as a character. And he's
1: being told you can't have you can't him do, do this.
0: These. You need to write a Superman movie where he's not in the suit and he doesn't fly. Okay. What? So here's here's Kevin Smith who loves comic books, but he, he wants the job. He wants to write a Superman movie. So he goes against his instincts and all right, I'm being hired by the producer to come up with a storyline. And hearing him tell the story about and there has to be a giant spider at the in the third act that attacks Superman. Okay, fine. Hearing him tell the story, and I'm not going to give it away, you can listen to it on YouTube if you want, it's funny and it's well worth checking it out, but it's an idea of where the writers come from. He didn't come up with a general idea, he came up with an idea based on parameters of what Superman A is be what john peters thinks he is and he's trying to come up with a way to make it work and again ultimately it didn't work out that way and it went a whole different direction and it ultimately got completely thrown out and re-thrown out and re -re it's a process called development hell where the show where the show gets that's what it's officially called in hollywood you get you get put into what's called turnaround and it's just we're going to restart this from scratch we're going to tweak it or we're going to completely gut it and restart it and redo it and it's interesting how you go those ways? So go look it up, Kevin Smith, Superman. Go to YouTube. Uh, it's out there. It's funny. It's informative, and he pulls no punches. And he's really telling the story. And uh, Kevin Smith knows how to tell a good story. Well worth, the, well worth the whatever ten minute video it is. Well, doesn't that just
1: sum up why
0: this part of the
1: process, the script writing part, is so important? Because well, you're you're not just writing, you're not just writing the script itself. It is it is a screenplay, and and you are writing out a vision of how you see this movie not just get spoken but also how you are seeing the actors perform it as well you're you're setting up what is going to be played out there this this is one of the biggest dominoes that there is in the whole building of the movie
0: yeah i think a script and a screenplay especially is and even the story to a point is a living breathing almost like a wikipedia document but who gets to contribute to it there and even and this can happen to the best Writer, directors that are out there, look at the Spider-Man franchise when Sam Raimi had it, when he was doing the Tobey Maguire work. He did a really good first one. He did a really good second one. And by the time they were getting ready for the third one, it almost seems like anybody at the at the Sony Studios who had the ability to write a memo and get it into the production offices was sending in what they wanted it to be. Sam Raimi has gone out publicly and said, "Look, my original thought for what I wanted Spider-Man three to be was this, this, and this." Well, there's a lot of that that's still there. But then there was a whole bunch of other stuff. Too many cooks. Way too kitchen. many. Yeah. And not too many cooks in the kitchen. It was that of course, but it threw too many plot elements and yeah, the Sam was good and Venom was good and but a lot of this stuff should have been something should have been held back or held out but somebody who had some degree of power said, no, I want do, 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 in the movie and I want it in there like this and I want him to look like that and that's how it's going to be well, you're, when you're a director or a writer, you're hired by the producer and when the producer or a studio executive, hey, you want us to make your movie? then this has to be in there and you're going to make him emo Spider-Man and that's the way it's going to be then you start having other elements that are not coming from the same source of material that just want to have a different stream of thought entered in that maybe doesn't really fit well, but it's going to happen because it's been mandated to happen. Have you ever watched the Nickelodeon
1: 90s cartoon, Rocco's Modern Life? I never even heard of it. Oh, really? No. Okay. Well, there's there's this one episode where um, Rocco and his friends, Filbert um, uh, and Heffer, um, are helping this – this cartoon writer Ralph Bighead, who is the son of their their, sounds na- like Nickelodeon. Who's the son of of Rocco's neighbors, um, the Bigheads, uh, Ed and Bev. Um, he they Wait, they Ed are- and Bev Bighead.
0: Yes, I love it.
1: Yes, they are helping him write out this this cartoon that he makes. it's this popular cartoon called the Fatheads um, but he is tired of it and he wants to finish his he, he wants to finish writing it and so but then the studio wants him to create a whole new cartoon and so he decides you know what I'm gonna give this over to these three guys who are going to completely tank this thing and and so anyway he, he gives them a chance to come to uh, to come and, and create this cartoon. And so the three of them get this book. It's like 1,000 some and some other ways to make a cartoon. And so then they are all writing through it. And there's a scene where the three of them in in hilarious fashion display exactly what that looks like when you get too many cooks in the creative kitchen. And they're like, oh, let's throw this in there. Let's throw this in there. Let's put this in there. And then suddenly it becomes enormous. And Rocco, who's the one who's trying to fashion all this together, is – So angry and irritated by the end of it because they have all of this stuff that has been thrown in there. And then, oh, by the way, Heifer, who seems to be the one who keeps on adding things to it, he wants to add one more thing in there, and Rocco just blows a gasket. But it's it's a funny and hilarious interpretation of how it actually goes when you have too many cooks in the kitchen creatively, and all of a sudden, you've got this monster on your hands.
0: You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Mel Brooks' The Producers, which is oh, a great yeah. Broadway show, and basically the storyline is it's a show within a show. These two producers, are they want to make a show, but they really don't have the money, and ultimately, to kind of cut a few corners, they want the show to bomb so they can collect on the insurance <laughs> yes. from the movie. So yeah. they come up with what they think is the worst story ever called *Spring* uh, Springtime for Hitler, where it, it's, it's just crazy, and so you get these Nazi characters, and of course this is all Beyond written, zany. Beyond yeah. zany. You've got to remember now, this is written by Mel Brooks, a Jewish comedian, <laughs> he did Spaceballs, oh, he's done so many good things, History of the World, it's a hoot, but it also has bearings in real life. Seth MacFarlane is the writer, producer, creator, does a lot of the voices for Family Guy, it's well documented, he wants Family Guy to go away. He wants to do other things. He's been doing The Orville. He's been doing some movies. But Family Guy is his bread and butter. He creatively has gone as far as he thinks it can go, and he takes a page from The Simpsons. This is a show that its best days are way in the past. They just are. And he says the same with Family Guy. We've done weird things to try to stay relevant, but he wants that show to go away. But Fox is determined to keep it going because it's a moneymaker for them. So you're going to keep going. So he thinks that, you know, Simpsons and Family Guy are both casualties of the same thing. It's just watered-down burnout. We're going to keep this thing going because it makes money, but the best days of its quality are behind them, both of them, but they keep rolling for money's sake. Um, Even beyond other things like that, you run into issues like, say, Game of Thrones, which was so beloved in the way that it was put together, and they're all based on books, but... Something went very off the rails for the last season of Game of Thrones. What?
1: Especially when they got to the point where they had outpaced
0: their source material. True. And now
1: they were having to create their own content by this point.
0: True. But it it went even beyond that. Or at least there's a lot of theory. There's a lot of smoke that tends to line up. The showrunners, who basically were the head writers, but they also kind of dictated the way the show was going to go. Turns out, right around the time that Game of Thrones came to an end, they got signed up by Lucasfilm to do a new Star Wars project. And there was a lot of theory that all of a sudden, this long, slow burn that had been going over the first many seasons just kind of came to a very quick, abrupt end. It did. It's almost like these guys needed to tie this off, not surgically, but just hatchet it off, tie up as loose ends as sloppily as they could so they could just end it. And they could move forward to the next thing, which, ironically enough, never really came to fruition because they're no. no longer involved in the Star Wars project. And, and the irony, too, is it still was a long process between the last season
1: and the season that preceded it. There was a long gap that was in there because they had extensive shooting to do. I mean, I, I don't watch the show, but I was I was at least interested and intrigued enough in how that final season played out because it was such a cultural phenomenon that I remember it, it was a long break between the an ultimate season and the final one i mean they had a lot to do to put it all together and yet even still it felt rushed in the end yeah everybody felt like it got rushed
0: so when you have a project and you have an idea and you have a storyline and you're going to shepherd it through however that works as the writer the producer producer director writer however it works from the first time you sit down and put pen to paper and the time that you finish it off is can be a very long process. Some movies have famously taken from the very first idea to the first time it actually got onto a screen like a decade. It, yes, it can. It can go that long. Yes. Maybe it's an idea that just gets put on the shelf. And for it a long doesn't time.
1: always mean it's going to be good when it's that long either.
0: It, it seems that, um, I was just kind of went through a, an example of this not too long ago. I'm starting to get back into the X-Men movies a little bit. I haven't watched them in a while. And I just watched the first one the other day. And, of course, the X-Men based on comic books and Stan Lee. and So the first couple movies, uh, Brian Singer shepherded it and his team. He's got a group of people that have been kind of with him since the beginning through Usual Suspects and Superman Returns and all that. Um, So when I went and saw X-Men for the first time, and it came out in the summer of 2000, I didn't know anything about X-Men. Mutants. What do you mean mutants? They're all monsters. Well, no, no. They're like superheroes, but they, you know, they didn't get gamma radiation. They just kind of mutated. And so now he shoots beams from his eyes or he can move metal and blah, blah, blah. All right. Well, going in blind and ignorant is sometimes the best way to go into these things. I saw the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire. didn't really know anything about Spider-Man, really. I didn't know his background. I, just, I know he can shoot webs from his arms, but, you know. I didn't know what to expect, and I loved it. It was marvelous. I saw the first X-Men movie. And it wasn't bad, but it was like a huge buildup for the return of Babe Ruth. He's back. And he just got a, barely a swinging bunt single and barely beat out the throat to first. That's what X-Men was to me, the first movie. It just seemed like it was going on big themes that just didn't quite deliver, and there was not enough action in it. You got all these action heroes that are showing up in the movie, and they didn't really barely do anything. And even when they did do something, it felt real quick and forced and over with. Whatever the problems were with the first one, the way it was executed, the way it was written, the way it was even directed by a capable director, by the time they got around to doing X-Men 2, holy moly, was it way improved. That is a good movie. Well, what happened with the first one? I mean, rarely is the example of the second one. It's never better than the first. X-Men 2 throttled the first one. They figured it out, and everybody's working as a they team. Yep. The action scenes so- seemed like they were well-developed, and I'm going to credit that to the writing of it. Interesting themes, and I like the X-Men overall, but the first movie, it, j- it didn't do it for me. I, I rarely want to go back and see the first one again. I just want to jump to X2 or some of the others. First class, very, very good. Um, so you can't say, well, it was their first one X Ex- first class. You're truly introducing these people for the first time. And that was an awesome movie. And Matthew Vaughn got involved. And he's one of those guys that will shepherd it through for the writing and producing and directing. It was like a reboot prequel that was still attached into all that had been
1: previously done. And, yeah, for first classes is, is phenomenal. My favorite X-Men movie, no question.
0: And. But it's, it's one of those where I think it needed another pass on the writing. I think, I think the elements are there. The ingredients are there, but they're not right. The, the, I don't know, the ratio is off. Something, it's all about action, but there's not so much action. Yes, there's a lot of, you know, weighty, deeper metaphor and thought and exclusion and inclusion. I get all that. And that's also there in X2. But everything that you needed those movies to be is in X2 and missing in X1. That's a writing issue. It seems to me like the movie, and the movie did get moved up. It was supposed to come out, I think, Christmas time of 2000, and they bumped it up okay. to the summer of 2000 did that ricochet and ripple effect backward we don't have the time for another pass on the screenplay this movie needs to get done faster let's go and that is another big problem i'm kind of segueing into some movies a lot of movies don't get they do not have a completed script or even barely a script they get made up while they're shooting it and there are many oh. there are many examples of this sometimes to the detriment sometimes to the success one of my favorite movies is spielberg's jaws he didn't. He famously did not like the script, but we got to get going. And that shoot, that production was a nightmare. Forget about yes. breaking down mechanical sharks. Uh, some of the scenes. He would sit down with the actors the day before they would shoot it, and they would just kind of work together. And they would, well, I'll say this. There's the scene where— Boy, talking about cobbled together. Ugh. But truly. I mean, there's the yeah. famous scene about the USS Indianapolis on the boat and a couple of writers, including the actor who performed it, Robert Shaw. They all took a pass at it, and then they all did it. And what you saw was the final version. There's another version where uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character comes to the chief Brody's house, and they sit down like, yeah, we still got a problem out there. The way the story was on the script, they didn't like it. So the three actors and Spielberg together sat down the day before they did it, and they just kind of basically, okay, this is the story beats that need to be hit. Let's craft it. And they did. It was an actor's workshop. And the next day, they sat down, no script. They just kind of knew what they needed to do, and they just, they did it. And they did a couple of takes, and it, it rocked. And the scene works on paper. That just one scene works, and the next scene works, and the next scene works. They found ways to make it work even without really a good script or a finished script where you'll be sitting down and you're trying to figure out, okay, guys, what are we going to do? And there's, you're, you're spending money, you're shooting a movie, but you don't really know what you're shooting. You're making it up as you go, and there are times where – Quantum of Solace comes to mind. There was a writers' strike, and so they, yes. they got a first pass done. Okay, let's shoot it anyway. And famously, the director and Bond himself would sit down and try to, you know, unofficially write. Oh, Daniel Craig has said that that was just an awful process. Oh yeah, that's,
1: that's why they really threw themselves into Skyfall to try to make that a quality movie. After after how quickly assembled Quantum was, yeah.
0: So sometimes it comes down to: should we shoot this? Should we not shoot this? Are we ready to shoot this? And in the case of Quantum of Solace, it's really not a good movie. I mean, it's not horrible, horrible. I've, I've seen worse, but it, it's definitely a low bar in the Bond franchise in their 60-year history. And that's why. But there's other movies, too, where there wasn't a writer's strike, and it just seemed like the, the, the script was barely cooked up. It's half-hearted. There, yeah. There's some good stuff about it, but it's also
1: half-hearted.
0: So it, it can work out, and it can sink the boat. It really depends on who is you know shepherding this thing through and are they really committed to it or are they just trying to get done with this and move on to the next thing will it work
1: let's talk about elements of the screenplay and writing themselves have you heard what the rule is dave or what the general rule is regarding your screenplay and how much should
0: be written um I, I guess that goes a lot of different ways, I guess, depending on what specifically you're asking. The typical rule is one page
1: equals one minute of what is taking place on screen. So in the thought then is about 90 to 120 pages is what you're looking like for a screenplay for a movie because what you get on one page is what you're going to have for about a minute's worth of the movie, whether it's whether it has dialogue or not. You're you're describing how things are going to be looking in addition to what the dialogue itself is. If I was to tell you that there was somebody who who would be a major exception to that rule with how their writing is, that they write even 160 pages, 170 pages, and
0: yet. It's still about a two-hour movie. Who do you think I would be talking about? I'm leaning toward Tarantino, but he doesn't do a lot of two-hour movies. Some of those are epic. I'm talking about somebody
1: who writes a lot, who has had a lot written for their screenplay, and yet the movie still plays out in about a two-hour fashion. Sorkin? Aaron Sorkin. Because because why it's so snappy. He oh can, yeah. The, his movies they can they can rattle off dialogue like crazy in those movies, and I, I think I saw that it was like 170 pages for the Social Network, and yet you're That's watching you're watching a two-hour movie though, and it's it, it's not like it goes way long like 170 pages there. You're going oh my gosh, this is going to be like almost three hours here with can, a screenplay like that. Up. But with Sorkin, with the way that he writes in particular you're getting this all condensed because the dialogue moves so quickly but that's kind of been the general rule like especially if you if you do some reading on screenplays like that's the general rule is a page for about a minute unless you are an exceptional an exceptional writer in terms of being able to put together dialogue like that that just rolls off and goes that quickly, and and it, it, it cuts that quickly back and forth. A guy like him, major exception to that rule.
0: Yeah, I, I had to look that up. Social Network, to me, seems like it was a three-hour movie just because of maybe what the subject was, but yeah, it's officially 120 minutes. That's two hours to the dot uh but it didn't seem like it others like a few good men though that's a longer movie but it's it, it moves fast Again, you know yeah. uh, jeff daniels who was on his show the the newsroom which was on hbo it's a great show um he said you have to have your i mean there's some great actors that are not set, suited for aaron sorkin's style they just have to the kind of almost a staccato delivery cuz you got to fly through this stuff and if you get a great actor that's not up to that pacing challenge it doesn't work. You have to get people that crackle together um, in a good way or a bad way, but they crackle and they can just deliver that kind of a staccato script and make it work. And it's almost like a musical beat when they do the famous walk-and-talks down the hallway of the West Wing or whatever the case, sports night, and they're walking through the sports studio, which I think would be a show you would love, by the way. It didn't last very long, but you would love it. It's like a fictional ESPN. You'd love it. And mm, Sorkin did it. Okay. Um, Yeah, I understand exactly what you mean. But then there's others where there's a lot of – I'll give you another one. Uh, It's kind of like the opposite of what you're talking about. I'm a big Star Trek fan, and the Star Trek The Motion Picture, the first movie, came out in 1979. They just re-released it, the director's cut, in a better better way – that movie, when they filmed it, it was a mess. The script was a mess. They didn't know what they were going to shoot. Their script was being written from day to day. A lot of the actors just stopped memorizing their lines because there was no point to because all the lines were going to be changed the next day anyway, so they would just go off cue cards or whatever the case. And a lot of it was, all right, we're going to do a lot of visual effects things here. Just try to look impressed. Impressed. And so they killed a lot of time in the movie just watching these visual effects montages, basically. And then the shots back of the cast looking amazed. And they had no idea what they were being amazed to look at. They just like, well, we'll figure that out in, in visual effects. And it ran so over the top and so long and nobody really had a clear vision of what was going on when the movie actually premiered the director himself brought the print directly from the processing lab it was in the industry term as they delivered the film wet so it still got like all the chemicals dripping oh, off of man. the film and that's how it went in the projector cuz they didn't preview it or anything, cuz it wasn't ready they literally finished editing the sh- the movie that day Got on a plane, flew it to Washington, D.C., which is where the premiere was at the Smithsonian. So, but that's an example of not just the writing process, but I mean, nobody really knew what this thing was going to be and exactly how it was going to go. And it kept changing and how are we going to do this? And it just, it was a mess of a movie. And they didn't have time to make adjustments. And that's actually kind of the way that a lot of movies will go. But the editor, the director, didn't have time to fix it. Many years later, like 2001, they did a re edit, a director's edit. And it's, A much better version of the movie. And I remember if I ever want, I'm a completist sometimes when it comes down to I'm going to watch the such and such trilogy or whatever. Even if one of them isn't good, I'm going to watch them all because I'm watching the trilogy. I always had to psych myself up to watch Star Trek the motion picture because it is slow. Right. It is plotting. It is boring. It's an interesting paper, you know, on paper, but the execution is horrible. Watching the director's cut, holy moly! Is that a huge improvement? Yeah, I mean, it just it trims it and it makes it work.
1: Yeah, and that movie is like taking one of the episodes and making it into a full length movie. One of the Star Trek original series episodes and making a full length movie out of it. Like, That's
0: exactly what it was. Yeah, there was. Er, finish your thought while I finish a donut.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, you see that play out. You you just see that if this was an episode. It would be a fascinating concept. It'd be one of those fascinating, quote unquote, human interest. Although in this case, it's it's a little bit more than human interest kind of story. Um, when you have extraterrestrial things involved, so you have the the kind of compelling story that that star trek would typically go with the problem was they made it into a two-hour version of that a, a full-length feature-length movie with that and suddenly they they just
0: seemed to have all these hollow spaces well they were going to make a whole other show a second series that ultimately didn't happen and they were already writing scripts they were already casting characters they're already building sets this was going to happen and then like 20 minutes before they shot it okay guys stop and then ultimately they took two of the scripts and kind of married them together okay. and that's ultimately what became the the storyline in a rough sense brass tacks that's what happened with the first movie but the series creator Gene Roddenberry was also credited as being you know really in charge of that movie and he was But to his detriment and to his downfall, he kept making changes. Okay, we're going to throw all this out. We're going to do this. Well, he was the guy in charge. And because of the disaster, did Didn't he and Robert Wise not really get along? He didn't get along with anybody. Well, He really had a hard time with everybody. And Robert Wise had done Sound of Music and West Side Story. He was a legend— But he wasn't really prepared for the disorganization that was coming into this. And everybody saw Star Wars, and they wanted Star Trek to do the same kind of thing. It's just not that kind of beast. Nope. Just because it's set in the stars, that's much more rich orchestral music, to give you a metaphor, while Star Wars is much more electric guitar and a drum solo and I mean, they're wonderful entities in and of themselves, but there's only so much connective tissue. They're not the same. Roddenberry basically ended his career because of that. He was he caused such a disaster that he was basically ceremonially put out to pasture because of it and was only yes. ceremonially involved in Star Trek from there on out. Um, but that's an example of where, well, let's do this thing. Let's make some money. All right, great. What about the story? Ah, story shmory. That can be a problem where you and I agree very much so that story is the most important thing, while other people look at the entire story as simply the MacGuffin. And MacGuffin is an industry term which is like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The MacGuffin is the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what purpose does the Ark of the Covenant, as far as that movie, serve? Really nothing. It's just something for them to chase after and to get away from the Nazis. That's what a MacGuffin is. I think uh, Hitchcock came up with the term. In, yes. some, in the eyes of some people, the entire story, everything, everything that's written down is the MacGuffin. We just need to get some really cool visual effects and get it. to Michael Bay movies come to mind oh, with man. this. Yep. It doesn't matter what the story is. We just got to make it look good. We
1: can throw these cliche lines yep. in there. We can throw these one-liners in there. We'll get a laugh out of everybody, and that's all that we need. You're going to get a B-movie. Then you're going to get a B minus movie disguised if you as are, an A list movie, right? If you are going to have that kind of writing and writing is just essential to having a quality movie, it really is. And it's no wonder then that some of the best directors are are people who and the best who are also some of the best writers and that those two things can really go together. Now, that's not always the case where where you have a singular visionary who's putting all this together because. Sometimes that's not a good thing because that person might not have a great idea. But but look at some of these these tremendous writers and the scripts that they have put together. And one name that came up when I was when I was reading about the topic of screenwriting was Billy Wilder from back in the in the 50s and 60s and Billy Wilder put together some some tremendous movies in that time and movies that had a very distinct kind of writing style to them and where they they had a certain a certain quip about them. They they had a they had a certain sarcasm about them. They had this certain kind of feel to them with the characters, and they were just extremely well fleshed out with the way that the writing was. The style was distinct. It was clear. It was concise, and it it had a, a plan in mind with the way that the writing was was fashioned together. And you see that with the very best writers, that they, they have got an idea of what they want this movie to be. They have an idea of how they want their characters to be. And they, they have dimension to them. And, and that's something that you can't just make up. You, you, can't just, you can't just hand a script to a very talented actor and, and tell him or her, all right, make this happen. Put it onto the screen. No, you you need a script, you need a screenplay that is going to fuel the imagination of that talent, that is going to bring out the best in that person. Sometimes uh, a screenplay and a certain actor playing one of those roles within there, they're just made for each other. And you can tell. You can tell and you can go, wow, that's, I, I mean, think of, think of like Heath Ledger's Joker. You know Heath Ledger made that happen in so many ways. He he made that performance happen with the way that he committed to it and put it on screen. But but think about some of those lines that, that were in there. I'm like a dog chasing cars. I, I wouldn't know what to do if I got one. You know that's good writing. That's great writing. Um, sometimes, what was it? Some the thing that's like gravity. Is it madness? Madness is like gravity. All you need is just a little push. You know, a line like that. That's or, writing. Yeah, that's that's tremendous writing. And that that's not just one-liner writing either. That's writing that has its character in mind. In that case uh, a madman, a crazy character. Think of the greatest lines in movie history. You know, th- those don't just happen by accident. Those don't just happen because they were delivered in a certain way. They were delivered in a certain way. But they were written down, so many of them were written down in a screenplay room with an idea of, this is going to be a significant moment. I'm I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. You know, that was pretty that, good. That is crafted. I, 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 I always pull my cheeks apart when I'm going to do that impression of the Godfather. But it, those are things that that are written down in a room with a vision of how it is going to play out on the screen. With an idea of th- this is going to be a significant line. Now it, it takes the right person. It takes the right kind of directing. to it, it takes all of those things working together in concert. To be able to make it into that signature moment. I am your father. That took a certain delivery from James Earl Jones to make that line work. But that is a significant moment in the writing room. Where you are saying this is the moment where Darth Vader reveals his true self, who he really is. And that takes the right kind of That takes the right kind of, of setting of the stage. You know, even with even with something very simple like that on the page that just says, I am your father. But
0: even that, James Earl Jones had said when he read the line, he was like, Oh, he's lying. It's not true. You know, and of course, it's. Boy, that's how Luke responds. Well, and even the way that movie was filmed, that was a big surprise. It was. The only people that knew it were George Lucas, James Earl Jones, who had to say the line. Um, uh, Irvin Kirshner, who directed Empire Strikes Back, and then Luke Hamill, just before they filmed it. Mark Hamill. Mark, who did I say? You said Luke Hamill. Well, Luke Mark Hamill plays <laughs> Luke. There you go. Yes. He was pulled aside just before they filmed it and said, look, David Prowse, who's wearing the Darth Vader outfit, who does not the one that you hear, James Earl Jones dubs him, was going to say the line that was in the script, Obi-Wan killed your father. When he says that, what the line is really going to be is, I I want you to respond to what the line is going to be, and nobody knows this except us four, so don't let it out. So you have to have a line that it's not just what was written in the room, it's what it reveals, and what is said and what you actually hear later in the final film are different things, and Luke has got to respond to what is going to be said, not what is said. So it's written in a way, but sometimes it's got a little smoke and mirrors and a little one hand's doing one thing and the left hand's doing a different thing. It's interesting how that can kind of come together too. Yeah. Let's I, let's segue real quick into a couple of um, really well-known filmmakers that are best known for their writing. And one of the things that comes to mind kind of based off of what you're talking about, uh you got to go to the Coen brothers. Now, this oh, is yeah. Joel and Ethan Coen, they're brothers. They sometimes they co-direct or one of them directs. Generally it's a bad sign if you get multiple people directing one movie. However, there are exceptions, and the Cohen brothers are that, uh, when they do co-direct. But uh, I think it's Joel that directs most of them. But it's funny, you know, all the classic lines from, say, The Big Lebowski, people will ask Jeff Bridges or John Goodman or Steve Buscemi or any of those guys and gals, hey, how much of that did you improvise? And Jeff Bridges said, not at all. I mean, every time that I put in the word, hey, man, those mans are in the script, You know, you don't want to improvise because Joel and Ethan cohen they're very much not just about collaboration while they are. They know what they want this movie to be. And they don't want people meandering too far off the path that they have written because they are very well known to write their own stories. And they're very... They're collaborative, but to a point. And so what is written is what it's going to be. And so you're not going to vary too much from that. The actors might want to get an idea and then just go with it in their own direction, then that's not what you want to do with the Cohen brothers. The Cohen brothers, you need to understand, have got a very strong vision as to what this is going to be. You need to walk that path. And uh, much like Heath Ledger did, I'm sure he brought things that nobody in the crew behind the scenes thought of, that he brought, yeah, let's go there, let's run with that, let But let's not do everybody it. is going to be Bill Murray. Not True. everybody is
1: going to be somebody who is literally improv on the spot, but who yeah. you trust with it because they have such a, a clever comedic mind to have the right kind of lines and the right kind of quips to do something like that. No, you you need to have some kind of of idea. You need, you need to have that road to walk, and that's what the
0: screenplay is for. Absolutely. Uh, if we're going to do a story here about screenwriting, then we've got to give a little more love to Quentin Tarantino. We've definitely given him uh, a show of his own, but Tarantino was a guy that when he started coming out, uh, really kind of getting noticed in the early 90s and doing things like Reservoir Dogs, uh, people wanted to get involved with this guy because it wasn't just the overall story. It was he. He shepherds this thing through all the way through. He does the story. He does the screenplay. He directs it, produces it. You know the writing, of course, Um, and the dialogue in particular. He has got. It's not Sorkin esque, but it's the dialogue is what Sorkin is probably best known for, and Tarantino's dialogue. I mean, really, what is what is Pulp Fiction about? Can you give me a quick one sentence synopsis of what Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction is about, or even about what Once Upon a Time in versions Hollywood versions
1: of the same story or well, ripple effects of the same story? Yeah, they're
0: they're character driven. They're not really plot driven, not right. really. And so you're just kind of watching a day in the life of da, 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 da Well, that's under what, sensational circumstances.
1: That's what like eighty percent of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is. Like you have some plot going on there, but but again. It's so character-driven. And there are moments where there's a lot of dialogue involved with it. There are moments where it's not dialogue. You are literally immersed in the world of it. And that's what's so cool, too, about about stories like that and about writing like that. Because one of my least favorite things about script writing is when you are beating us over the head with the obvious. Like where, where we could piece together some of these things and, and think about them based off of what we are seeing, but instead it's we need all the details. We need to explain the character's mind, and we need them to talk about it all. And it's like, no, you don't. You're just you're giving us extemporaneous dialogue here. You're giving us all this extra stuff. It's just we could pick up on that. We could pick up on that dialogue. We know that that's what's happening right now, or... I think this, or this is what is happening, and that you have to speak it into action. That is that is dialogue that drives me up the wall. I Rather you- than, let us figure it out here. like, And that's what is so good about Tarantino, because with the world that he is creating in there, okay, yeah, we can figure that out. We can figure these things out based on what we are seeing here. And he does he doesn't let the fluff take over then. Like, that's where then he allows for us to go, All right, I'm going to learn about it from this character and learn about who this character is just from them being themselves and us getting parachuted into their story rather than we don't need all of their background. We don't need all of the extra details. Let's just let them speak for themselves or act for themselves, too, where you don't even need the dialogue necessarily then. You don't even need the script. We can figure it out ourselves. The audience is smart Thank goodness for directors like that and writers like that who do it like that.
0: Well, you know, take Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as an example. It's a fictional story about an out-of-work actor and a stuntman buddy. and They're trying to navigate a new version of Hollywood while in the background it is, at least at the beginning, is a very based on real events, some dark events in Hollywood's history with the Manson family. But it's not spelling it all out. You know, well, this is Charlie Manson and this is who he is and what he did. And it doesn't even mention the uh, uh, the LaBianca murders which took place at the same time, pretty much. Right. Uh, it, it, you can figure that out on your own. Most people know about Charlie Manson, but everyone kind of maybe gets it wrong. Charlie Manson went, and, no, Charlie Manson actually didn't kill anybody, but he got a lot of people to do it for him. Right. And he's very roped into that. There's a difference, but not a difference. Tex Watson did, and the, the girls did, and that's what it was. But then it takes a real sharp turn where the reality of where what is historically accurate of that movie all of a sudden takes a left turn. Where Maya Hawk, in real life, the three girls went to the house and they did that with Tex Watson. One of them did not run back to the car and then drive off and abandon it. That never happened. But all of a sudden. Oh, one of them, forgot. I forgot my mask. I'm sorry. I forgot my knife or whatever it was. Go back to the car and go get it. And then she gets in the car and drives off. She doesn't want to be a part of it. That never happened. So now it's just and the two girls that go into the house. And then, of course, what does ultimately happen in the in the Manson family get torn apart by the dog and by Brad Pitt and by you know Leonardo DiCaprio's flamethrower in the pool. None of that happened. What really happened was they went next door and killed Sharon Tate and her friends in one of the worst murders in American history, and Manson was very involved in it. But they're not giving all the background of helter-skelter and so forth. You can figure all that out. It's not about that. That is just something that's brewing in the background, but what the movie is truly about is... Trying to navigate this new Hollywood, and you've got Sharon Tate, unaware of what's coming. But ultimately, in the story, it never really comes. Not for her, it doesn't. I thought one
1: of the crew did actually leave in the real story. No, in in the real the real account of it. No,
0: no, no. no. I,
1: I thought that that was somewhat accurate that somebody did leave, like like Maya Hawk did in the movie. But, no, it was and- uh,
0: they. But it was without getting too into it, it was a case of wrong identity. They were. Uh Manson felt slighted by a guy named Terry Melcher who had worked with the Beach Boys. And you know, and, uh, uh, Manson had written some songs that he wanted the Beach Boys to do. Melcher basically just kind of pushed Manson out of the way. And Manson felt slighted. And so he went to the house that Ma- that Melcher had been renting. And he wasn't renting it anymore. And they'd actually already been there a couple of days before. And he knew that Melcher wasn't there or at least didn't believe it. And then he went to enact some kind of what a lot of people think was supposed to be a measure of revenge against Melcher to an extent, uh, but got some other people instead is je- i mean, okay I'm, yeah I'm nobody real nobody bats.
1: did leave yeah you're right yeah nobody left i i thought i had read somewhere that somebody did leave but yeah well, that was that was just the first indicator i guess of the fact we're gonna that it's not from gonna truth. go yeah. this is not gonna go exactly how you think it is like just but it was something small like that that was written in there but, but that's so.
0: another beautiful thing about the the writing to a point now some points this can get out of control you you know where the audience's expectations are going because everybody knows what happened with the Tate LaBianca murders and Helter Skelter and we all know what happened most of us do anyway and if you were too young then you can read up about it um, but then it takes a hard left turn so you're you're playing on audiences expectations of where this is going to go and then you flip it flip it for real but uh, then there's points where it gets stupid you know and I, I'm I'm not gonna I don't want to pull Certain people out, but JJ uh, Abrams has got a crew of people writing in. Damon Lindoff, in particular, loves to throw in, well, let's just have this. All right, great. Where is it going to go? I don't know. And like the like the cloud monster on Lost, you know, it was interesting, but a little sci fi and a little not believable in the world of reality. But all right, but it, it was, went nowhere. It went nowhere. But it was just something to get people talking. I didn't about even watch
1: Lost, and I know that yeah. it went
0: nowhere. It went nowhere. But he was he's well known for throwing those things out. He got involved with Ridley Scott doing Prometheus, which was like a lead into Alien, and he started. It was going to be a much more direct tie into Alien with clear lines. And Lindoff got in there, and according to the voices of many people involved in the production. Threw it off the rail. Well, let's do this and this other thing. And no, they're not this. It's this instead. Well, okay, but where's that all going to go? Ah, you don't have an answer for it. Now, that can sometimes be a good thing. And other times, like the Star Wars sequel movies, it can be a bad thing because nobody had an idea where it's going to go and it needs to go somewhere and it needs to come to an end. And if you're just, well, we'll do this and it goes, it's an interesting concept. That's fine. Where is it going? All stories need to have a beginning and an end. It's just, it's not a thread that just weaves off into nowhere. Maybe a character does, or a certain element does, but the story as a whole, it's not a story if there's no end to it. Well, and and that's
1: that's the interesting thing. Since since you're talking about an ending here at toward the end of the yeah. podcast,
0: like the, that segue. The
1: ending, uh, it's a great segue. Well designed by and me. The ending seems to come about in a lot of different ways because sometimes creators of movies have an ending clearly in mind. They've got the end game in mind. It's just, how are we going to play it out to get to that point? Sometimes, like in the case of Quentin Tarantino, I was reading this, the ending comes as he is writing the entire script, as he's writing the entire screenplay. He writes the ending literally at the very end. Like He might have an idea of how it all might go, but he will write the end truly at the end. Some people will write to get to the end. But that, that approach, it, it gets taken different ways. It can be successful in both ways. But the bottom line of it all, though, is what is your vision? Like, what, what is your vision that you have in mind for all of this? And how good are you through your, your screenplay, through your dialogue, through even your lack of dialogue and the overall feeling of the movie? How good are you at creating a setting that is truly beyond just the setting of the movie that goes beyond the three dimensional that goes into the characters themselves how good are you at creating a world where the world is one that is beyond just just this is the location this is this is the setting it has to be a world that has fully developed characters in it it has to be a world that has a plan of how those characters are each going to be unique and different. It has to have a world where the dialogue is is very engaging and where it's not just one-liners, it's not just quips, it's not just funny things. It has to have a very clear direction of the, this is where we are going with it and that it is consistent, that right. it will be very consistent through and through. I was reading a few of the C's that that have to come up when when you are writing a screenplay that it has to be clear it has to be concise it has to be creative and it, it
0: cohesiveness is, is so important with all of that it is important but there's almost a fourth category now it's optional because if you, if you and I we both appreciate a good movie and there's you know and a lot of that the backbone of any good movie is the story whether it's character driven or it's or it's plot driven if it's good then it carries everything, and everything else is almost optional beyond that. I don't care how well it looks, but, I mean, when you get – Let's stick with Tarantino, how he pulls you into the world. Whether it's the music that he uses, whether it's music of the time, like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or just almost a lot of surf rock, which is not what I would have expected in Pulp Fiction, or even Steeler's Wheel when a torture scene happens in Reservoir Dogs, it's not what you would expect, but it kind of throws you off and it makes you almost feel even more weird, which was the point in the first place. He does that in Kill Bill, too. Yeah, right? he does yeah. that in Kill Bill, too. It's you know, he's got his own kind of method to making it work, it works. But then you get other things that happen where the story is just its just enough to kind of move things forward and it doesn't really matter who says what and who does what. We just need you to stick around. Or it's
1: beating you over the head with the obvious. Or that too. Again. But yeah. it's
0: basically just something, just enough, duct tape to hold it together and then we're going to have some great effects here and we're going to have really cool wardrobe and some sexy girls and guys over here to make the audience want to check off all the things that you know audience poll results want. And I think every poll never asks, what do you think about the writing of the movie? But what do people understand about writing of a movie? They just care about what's presented in front of you, and if it can distract you for an hour and a half or two hours, long enough to get your money for the ticket, that's all that matters. So it comes down to: Is the why are we making this movie for money, or because we got something to say and there's a reason to do it? I love. The, I got nervous when they were going to do the Karate Kid spinoff Cobra Kai. Have you ever seen the movies? We're going to make a show now about it. Like, are They're they just doing this because it's retro. They, it turns out, have something to say. And Cobra Kai, they've done, I think they just have the fourth season coming up here pretty quick. I think that's the one. It's really good. It really is really good and they've got things to say and it really truly continues the spirit of not just the first movie but thus far just about everybody that had anything to do with the original movie short of uh, Mr. Miyagi unfortunately who passed away but he's very much the heart of the story as well in a lot of ways. They had somewhere to go with this and they really had something to say and it's marvelous while other times next summer part seven is coming out of the whatever franchise Didn't we say all we needed to with the other one? I mean, if they announce another Pirates of the Caribbean movie, despite the whole Johnny Depp fiasco right now, I I don't care. I I think we were done after really the first movie. Everyone was excited for a sequel, and then they quickly went off the rails. Um, The first movie is fantastic. See that and leave it alone. We don't need Pirate 7. We just don't. We just don't. They just started work on Fast and the Furious 10. I think it's a paycheck for a lot of people now. It it lost its way early. It found its way back. Got to give a lot of credit to Justin Lin with Fast 5. And then ever since then, it's been slowly and slowly. It's a Vin Diesel paycheck machine is what it is. But... Um, Family yeah. So it, it comes down to the point now. What are we doing? Are we really going to tell a story, which is what you and I would agree is a very important part, if not the most important thing with movies anyway? Storytelling. I can enjoy a pop, a pop, a pop. Uh, bop, I can't say a popcorn movie. There we go. Where story is kind of secondary, but you just kind of turn off your brain and forget. They're all benefits, but when you're doing something. Like a Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen. I mean, is because, there again, any story there at all? The, the story, maybe more than anything else, reflects
1: the vision that you have for the movie. And Exactly. If you, if you have put the time into it, and if you have really worked hard to craft that vision and, again, that setting, like I talked about earlier. Your script is going to reflect that. Your screenplay is going to reflect that. And then you're going to have people who are coming in and they have a very good idea of this is how I'm supposed to act this. I'm not trying to pull this thing out of the fire. This has already been forged and it's been prepared, and now it's just set up for
0: me to knock it out of the park. If it's just a shiny glitz fest... We want to sell tickets. That's all yeah. we care about. And I get it. Hollywood is is two different things going on. It's art and it's business. It can't be all art, but it can't all just be business. you got to find that middle line. If you keep putting out movies just to sell tickets and nobody cares – Look what's happened to the Star Wars franchise. It's it's all about selling tickets, and the story was just stupid. It just, I mean, they might not have another Star Wars movie for a while, but they're finding something on the small screen that's kind of working, but also kind of not working with the Boba Fett thing. Um, that's another story, but it's you know if you start losing the faith of the audience, whether it's for a particular franchise or, lord forbid, it gets so bad that people start losing faith in in movies in general because they're all designed to sell tickets and nothing more, nothing for the imagination. You know, if you could get back to the way they used to make them, and every generation says that, but I think they've got a point. Um, but there are certain examples of where we have a reason to want to make this because we've got a heck of a story to tell, and it's not just to sell tickets. But why did they make a fourth Matrix movie? Apparently, nobody really liked it. Um... Leave it alone. Watch the first one and leave it at that. It's kind of going the realm of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. You know, are we making them because we really have a story to tell, or is it like Ghostbusters 2 where only Columbia Pictures wanted to make a follow up? They still had Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd write it with a lot of input from Ivan Reitman, but nobody really wanted to make it, and the studio wanted a lot of special effects, and so that's basically what the movie was about. And it's watchable, but it just isn't there. Clearly, hit the same. No, way. Yeah. they really had something to say with the first one, and I really like the last one that was pretty good too uh, but the second one you could tell people wanted to make it for ka-ching, ka-ching that's right they were in financial problems actually columbia pictures and ghostbusters will save us and they did but at a cost script
1: writing permeates through so much of what we talk about on this podcast it, it works into how so many of these movies work or don't work how you have some of these great performances? It it is there. It is a constant in the midst of of all of this. So much of what we talk about, you can thread it back to how it's written and how it's put together and prepared. And you see, and and you feel good writing permeate on the screen. No question about it. You know whether it's the big screen or the small screen. I mean, you see that great television writing. I I, I love. I love watching. You mentioned Family Guy earlier. I, I love watching the old episodes of The Simpsons, the early seasons, the
0: first ten.
1: How must that writing room have been? Like they they were tremendous. The 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 zingers. The, they they had the the best lines at all times. Like you can't just go, "Well, oh, that was the best line of the show." Like you could pick out so many. You had comedy right, you had some of the best of the best for comedy writers in that room. Conan O'Brien was in that room before before making it big on late night. You know, you they had it going on as far as putting together snappy witty dialogue that that just flows all the way through and I I mentioned that earlier with Billy Wilder as you get into like some of you know whether it's sarcasm or having having a certain type of font that you have with your writing when you've got it going on it's so so obvious that you've just you've got these great quips that are just rolling off the tongue so easily with those actors. That's great writing, and that's yeah. writing that you see clearly coming through. That's
0: such a, I mean, we weren't talking about collaborative effort. The writers do it. The the actors, the voice actors, they deliver it, and not just – for one, they do like half the cast. Harry Shearer is like a third of the Simpsons cast right there, from yeah. Mr. Burns to – I mean, it's, it's amazing how they do that, and you lose any one of those wheels, and it starts to fall apart like the writing room has changed over the years, and that's clearly obvious. The actors aren't losing their touch, but they don't have the material anymore. So yeah, if sometimes you want
1: to, on the flip side it's it's biting commentary or it's biting lines that that really hit you and you're like whoa that that was clearly meant to to send some daggers into not just whoever is is performing within that movie but also the
0: audience with with the lines that get created. There's a running toll how many times has the Simpsons predicted the future? And I mean and they did it in a kind of a comment in a in a social commentary kind of way that was maybe pessimistic and a lot of it has come true. They made the joke of, you know, one day Mickey Mouse will be owned by, you know, we're all going to be owned by Mickey Mouse and now the Simpsons are owned <laughs> by Mickey Mouse. They've predicted yes. Super Bowl winners. I mean, you name it, it predicted presidential elections in a way. Uh it's interesting the way things have gone and it's been done in the sake of comedy so maybe that's something else. Maybe a good way to wrap this up is you and I've talked about um, you know, are we consuming movies like just a beverage, You put it down and go on to the next one, sitting in an airport and just trying to consume, or really sitting down and savoring a meal? I think it comes down to a lot of the writing. I'm not poo-pooing popcorn movies either. I like those too. I don't think they can all be well-crafted thinking person scripts. Because they serve a lot of different purposes. But when that's all it becomes and it really starts to trend toward idiocracy, the movie versus as is, is a real life kind of thing, and all movies are just something to just be consumed and move on to the next thing, then yeah, I don't blame the fact that people don't want to go to extra steps because it's really, quote unquote, limited art. I heard a really good quote that said, art is uh, is teaching us how to live life and love life. And in some cases, some of the movies that come out are very much art. In other cases, they're not anything near art. I mean, there's some things that put some art talent into it, but it's overshadowed by a lot of other stuff. Just to get it out, make some movies ka ching ching, we'll move on to the next one. We're doing part seven, but we're already thinking about part eight, because more money, more money, more money. There goes the art, you know. So I can't blame people sitting in an airport, you know, terminal watching whatever movie on their small teeny phone. It's intended to be seen on the big, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not worth it to me. I get that. But then when you get something comes out from Nolan or for a while Singer or others that were fabulous, Aaron Sorkin, whether it was for the small screen or the big screen, fabulous. Should be seen, should be savored, should be watched and rewatched because you're not going to get it all the first time. So it, things like that are fabulous. Um, you know, if there was a little more of a ratio pushing back that way, maybe there wouldn't be the debate about our movie theaters still something that are relevant today. Because you got, you've got to see it at the right place. You don't have a fine meal. With a plastic napkin and plastic, you know, forks. You need to sit down at the big long table with the crystal stemware and the silver plates and blah blah blah. It's part of the meal. The wine isn't just something you drink; it's part of the meal.
1: Rick and Nick Talk Flix is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway Two, just down from the airport. You and I have given that metaphor a lot, Dave, about uh, what you just described—that metaphor of a fine meal—and that's how we look at movies. That's how I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast look at movies and and how they treat it because it, it has to be well crafted like that but but what is so often at the center of that that backbone is the way that the writing is it is the way that the screenplay is because you get the vision playing out right there and and you hear it but you also see it then too and the and the screenplay reflects that the writing will reflect that it, it like you said if you want to get that rich feeling to it That's where you put your time and your work into it and you create dialogue that is compelling. If you're
0: sitting down in the theater seat every single time, all right, let's kill two hours. Uh, There is exceptions for that. Yeah, absolutely. Or I can't wait for this. Like you would wait to sit down and I am so hungry. I need food and a good food. (laughs) That you know, it's the same thing with movies. Not just the popcorn, but sitting down and I want to savor the. I have been looking forward to it. And then when you get disappointed by it, it's because you sat down and you really cared about it. You know, Uh, I'd love to see us get back to that. But a great place to do it, Bemidji Theater. uh, uh, Missy and the crew they do a fantastic job. If you're not right, quite ready for uh, going down to see a show during the pandemic or the endemic, swing by the snack bar, get a couple of snacks and an icy. Especially as we start getting, it doesn't look or feel like it right now, but we are. Allegedly Coming up to summer. Ice is not coming off the lakes in time at all this mm. year. But great spot for an icy and some great popcorn. Great deals. Get your popcorn bucket. It's like, I think three and a half dollars to refill that giant behemoth thing for the remainder of 2022. It's a great deal. Great spot to see a show. They're right off of Highway 2 between Bemidji and Wilton. Go see a show.
1: That's where we'll cap it for this script and story, although we certainly are not on any kind of script no. when we go here. No. Better that way. Uh, that's uh, that's how we get some We're of lucky the... we do this show in English.
0: Really? It's too early. Um, uh, are you hungover? No, well, just, the that, coffee's not in yet.
1: That's true. Yeah, we we could just be floating into gibberish then. So, <laughs> I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at, at the, the movies. movies.